0: Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Drew Freeman and Alex Sullivan.
1: Thanks, Ray. This is the Ray Wenderlich podcast. Welcome to episode 12 for season 10, our second of three very special end of the season episodes. This episode was recorded on Tuesday, the 14th of July, 2020, for release on the 29th. This episode is sponsored by all the new toys I got to help learn Swift UI.
0: I'm Drew Freeman here with my seasonally experienced co-host, Alex Sullivan. Thanks, Drew. Our guest for this episode is Ben DiFrancesco. Ben is a software engineer who's been programming professionally for almost 15 years. He currently runs a small software consultancy called ScopeLift, which is focused on crypto. On this
1: episode, Ben talks about the secret of crypto networks, and the all-too-mysterious technology of blockchains. Later, Alex will talk about the Flutter game engine, Flame. Ben, welcome back to the show. It's been about three years, uh, three seasons.
2: Thanks, Drew. Thanks, Alex. It's, yeah, it's great to be back. I'm
1: trying to remember, we, we were talking about, uh, about uh, assembl no, was it assemblers or processors? No,
2: it was concurrency. Ooh, concurrency. In, concurrency in Swift and just generally on iOS at the mm-hmm. time, yep fascinating terrifying
1: oh yes the 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 all the all too fun a-wait yes
2: we're still awaiting more advanced cryptocurrency. more advanced i
1: I saw an interview with uh with with latner recently saying you know when do they when do you think the manifesto will come true and he and he said i i wish it already had (laughs) yeah but but we are not here to talk about concurrency this time though there probably will be some in the technology that we'll be discussing but first of all i want to ask how you're doing and how are you doing with uh sheltering at home and all the other covid
2: craziness yeah it's been a crazy year huh um you know we're very lucky. We're blessed here. Things have been okay. Um, my wife and I are have had to figure out working from home with uh, three little kiddos running around since no schools or camps or anything are open. Um, but we've we've worked it out uh, as well well enough. Uh, you know, running my own company, I can be flexible. Her her employer has been awesome about it, and uh, we're making it work. So if that's the worst thing we have to deal with this year, you know, it'll be uh, it'll be okay. <laughs> How old are the little ones now? Oh boy, I have to think about it. So six. <laughs> Four and a half, and one who just turned two. The youngest turned two. Oh, happy birthday to the little urchin. (laughs) Yeah.
1: The question I've been asking everybody at the beginning of the show, of course, is when you're not actually having your fingers attached to a keyboard, and let's assume that you're able to go outside and do things like that, (laughs) what do you
2: do that is entertaining to you that is not code-related? Oh, man. That's a... Good question. I mean, honestly, especially this year, um, with everything going on, but, but, uh, but really just in general, if I'm honest, like between running a small company and having three young kids, that's pretty much all of my time. <laughs> so like, <laughs> it's like that and then I'm done. And both of those things are awesome too, by the way. They're both a lot of fun. It's stressful at times, but fun. Um, but that's most of my time. I mean, I used to enjoy this thing called baseball. We used to have that. Maybe we'll have it again someday. Um, you know, but uh, but but we'll see. Um, but yeah, mostly, it's, honestly, it's just family and and uh, and being attached to the computer, like you said.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I I can respect you. I, I have one, and I was like, okay, maybe two, but we 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 just got one child, and and that's been a handful for us. So,
2: so the <laughs> fact that you have three, I, I can I can heartily respect. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like I said, it's fun, uh, crazy, but fun. So it's it's you know it's it's all good. And it looks like you have an amazingly comfortable chair to work from.
1: Yeah, the ch- that's the a beautiful, chair. beautiful nice. looking chair.
2: Well, if you're gonna, you know, sit in front of the computer all day, you got to be comfortable. So this one, this one serves me well. So tell us a little bit about Scope Lift. Sure. Um, so I actually started Scope Lift, I guess, about six years ago now. Um, I have a more traditional engineering background, but I have always done a ton of software and programming. So I was working for a large aerospace engineering firm in the Philly area for a while Ooh. and kind of just realized I didn't love working for a big bureaucratic company and wanted to do um, something different. And I realized that the software stuff that I was doing while in an engineering context could be applied to all different kinds of things. So at the time I started developing. Um, Apps on the side, you know. That was when the iPhone was still relatively new, and I uh, was starting to, uh, you know, get into that a little bit. And at some point, realized that I could go independent and do that, um, do that myself. And so, uh, ScopeLift was born with me originally, just as a freelancer, mostly doing mobile development. And over the years, I kind of grew it, started taking on bigger projects, including web and back-end work, more, tr- you know, traditional web 2.0 uh, kind of uh, stuff, and uh, you know, hiring some engineers here and there to uh, help. Take take on bigger projects and that sort of thing, working a lot with startups, but really with a range of different kinds of companies and different kinds of projects Um, and kind of in parallel to all that with developing Scopelift, I was also falling down this rabbit hole that is crypto and blockchain. Um, And so in the last couple of years, started uh, picking up more uh, crypto related consulting work. Um, and this past year, uh, just at the beginning of 2020, actually decided to go all in with that, uh, wound down legacy projects uh, that were non-crypto related. And now uh, we're focused 100% on, uh, on crypto related projects.
1: All right, so let's, let's take a look at the two big terms. Now I know what crypto is and I know what networks are, but let's talk about crypto, <laughs> crypto networks.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, so like a lot of things, uh, in tech, you get these words and then they become so hyped up that they then like eventually at some point they become devoid of meaning. Right. So, <laughs>
1: um,
2: so you know, blockchain is this term that uh, emerged around, uh, you know, Bitcoin being the original kind of uh, blockchain network. And then we got this word blockchain and then that became like this huge hype and it became used to mean all these different things to the point where it almost means nothing. So now I tend to use the term a little, I still call it blockchain. That's fine. But I, I tend to, to, distinguish between the idea of blockchain, which is a very general term that has become amorphous, like I said, with the idea of decentralized crypto networks, which I think means a a little bit more of a specific thing. Um, But the basic idea is that these networks that are, like I said, decentralized, Um, they have this underpinning of cryptography um, that it plays obviously an important role. Um, And um, they have almost always a... um, kind of incentive layer, an economic layer or a financial layer that involves uh, some kind of asset um, that hopefully, if people decide that it does, has some co- kind of value uh, associated with it. So I would say those are kind of the components that make up uh, a crypto network. Um, and there are a bunch of them now with different kinds of characteristics.
1: And obviously, as you mentioned, Bitcoin was one of the first was the first one, um, the, the mysterious Satoshi. Yep. Um, Satoshi
2: Nakamoto, pseudonymous ooh. founder. We still don't know who he was. Pseudo pseudonymous. I can't say that word. I'm not even gonna try. <laughs> That's close <laughs> enough. Close enough.
1: <laughs> so he basically came up with the the general idea of the blockchain and the 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 idea of of how the the coin would be managed.
2: Yeah, exactly. So um, Satoshi really. Uh, What what Satoshi really did was he took a bunch of technologies that already existed, um, like peer-to-peer networking, um, cryptography, elliptical curve cryptography, uh, hash functions, and he kind of put them together in a really unique way that uh, nobody had conceived of before. Um, And so he didn't necessarily invent any kind of new technology per se, but like there was no fundamental new research kind of thing that he had created. But he just sort of assembled these pieces in a really smart and intelligent way with the way that he aligned the incentives around how the network would kind of manage itself and remain decentralized. Um, And it worked. And amazingly, it's like still working today. It's It's kind of hard to believe. You know, usually like the first version of something falls flat on its face or gets surpassed. Maybe that'll eventually happen with Bitcoin. But for now, for over 10 years, it has has operated and has only grown in in value and in you know kind of importance so it's it's very impressive actually what what he did well, this, say this it's only grown and,
1: I wouldn't say it's only grown
2: it's <laughs> it's grown a lot and then it's okay. decreased and then it's true. grown and true if you zoom out if you take the long <laughs> the wide view the wide view um, I will that's a good that's a good point to like I actually want to say this right up at the front like I am definitely not giving anything even remotely close to investment advice <laughs> right I, I, I'm not telling you to buy any of uh, the assets that will, might be mentioned during the course of the podcast. In fact, like I would actually say, um, don't buy them unless you learn about a little more. And if you do decide to buy some, buy a small amount, uh, an amount that you can afford to lose because this stuff is still also new and so extremely volatile that. Um, It really all could go to zero and we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So I would just be cautious about that. I'm excited about them. I think that they're important and I would encourage you to learn about them, but don't rush out and like put your life savings into it or anything like
1: that. We we really don't want to focus on the cryptocurrencies so much as the technologies behind it. Um, One of the things that you mentioned was that it is peer to peer. What is the advantage of making this whole thing decentralized?
2: Yeah. um, So the thing about uh, it being so decentralized is one of the so that's kind of another one of those words that uh, starts to take on a bunch of meanings and (laughs) just sort of say it so many times that, it again, it kind of loses loses any sense of meaning. To me, what decentralization means is that um, it it removes it's a network that removes any kind of. concentrated power, right? So it, it enables like this coordination amongst the people who are participating, but it does so without a trusted centralized entity that uh, that amasses some kind of, of power by being that centralized entity. So if I could make a, an analogy here on the kind of traditional internet, right? in a sense, social media uh, companies like, say, uh, Facebook and Twitter, they've decentralized communication in the sense that now any of us can participate. We can all post whatever we want. We can share that sort of stuff. So they've decentralized communication, but it's decentralized via this centralized platform, actually. So there is sort of this person, not person, but company, at least corporation that controls um, this this platform that all this communication is happening on. So along some axes, you can consider these platforms decentralized. But actually, there's someone who at the end of the day has a switch. They can delete your content, remove your account, do all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, Bitcoin is a network uh, for exchanging value. It's like an economic network. but. And it lets you do that with anyone across the whole world, right? Like you can send any amount of value to anyone across the world. No one can prevent you from doing that. And that's what's the the difference about it, right? It allows that decentralized peer-to-peer collaboration without some kind of uh, platform or centralized corporation amassing some kind of power. Um, and I think that's the big difference that makes these uh, networks unique and, and makes them interesting in a lot of ways.
1: Now, you, you mentioned that it's amazing that a version one has managed to survive 10 years but it's not exactly version one, it, it sort of patches itself somehow, at, at least the, the, the Bitcoin uh, history somehow, it, it's got a self-patching mechanism
2: yeah so that's interesting so um there's a couple things that maybe you could be referring to so one of them is the fact that the network itself so the network is is decentralized so it's peer-to-peer anyone can join it right and at the end of the day what it is is it's software it's a set of rules that are backed by you know that are enforced by cryptography um about how uh the what the protocol uh is right and if you want to participate in that network you have to use software that conforms to that protocol Um, and there's no one that has that top-down control now within the kind of rules of that network there are certain certain parts of it that sort of uh, adjust themselves, right? Um, so one of the things that is, uh, and we don't have to dive too deep into the technicals cause we'll we'd spend the whole show talking about it. but <laughs> Maybe you've heard about the uh, this idea of mining. So this is how the network is secured by this idea of mining. Um, and uh, as miners, uh, you know, uh, create new Bitcoin as they mine new Bitcoin, um, you know, as they secure the network, they're rewarded with new Bitcoin, right? That's their reward for securing the network cryptographically. Um, Now, there are rules encoded in the network that adjust how the mining works over time so that it always kind of remains uh, sustainable and the security and uh, remains uh, sufficient. Um, At least that's the theory behind it. And similarly, there's kind of an issue and schedule to the asset that changes over time. But those rules are, Kind of encoded um, in the, the way the software works so it kind of does adjust itself like you were speaking like you were saying earlier um, based on some of these parameters the second thing that you might be referring to is that like all software it can be the software itself can be changed right so you can t- you can download the bitcoin software and you can change the rules in your version of the software the problem is if you then try to use that software with the rest of the network all your other peers are going to reject you. So when you stop and think about that for a second, what it actually means is there's kind of another layer, there's like a hidden layer below this, which is the social consensus layer, right? If enough people upgrade or change their software to follow new rules um, and everybody decides that those that new set of rules is still Bitcoin, well, then I guess that's what Bitcoin is, right? Um, so that's kind of like one of the hidden secrets about crypto is that there is actually some kind of consensus beyond the, the network and the cryptography itself. It's the social consensus. But that's just very, very difficult to change. So throughout the history of, of Bitcoin, there have been occasions where uh, we the the kind of community of people around Bitcoin running Bitcoin have made sort of backwards compatible changes to the way that the protocol works. Um, and, you know, there's a whole history there that you could talk about that I won't get into, but uh, but that's another aspect to it, right? And, and different <sighs> networks have different kind of social um, consensus around how and when you make these sort of changes, whether they have to be backwards compatible or not. But that's sort of like a whole another rabbit hole that you could get down to. So that's an interesting aspect about it.
1: This is how other things branch off.
2: Yeah, yeah. So there have been a couple of, uh, there's something called a fork, right? So you may have heard about this. There have been several instances in Bitcoin's history history where actually the the community around Bitcoin couldn't decide on what the the best course of action was in terms of whether whether or not to upgrade the software, how to upgrade the software. And uh, in those cases, there have actually been small minorities that have gone ahead and created, modified their software, continued the network off in another direction. So it basically uh, split in two um, and you've created now a new a new network that has its own kind of native uh, asset to it. Right. And and that happens regularly or that has happened a couple of times in Bitcoin's history. And then, of course, there's a whole host of other networks that didn't uh, weren't created by directly, uh, you know, changing the rules of Bitcoin. But were uh, new sets of rules and new networks that started from the ground up, um, and and amongst those, the one that I the, the one that is really worth uh, mentioning is called Ethereum, um, which is the the second highest um, kind of or, or most popular uh, uh, blockchain I would say that's out there, um, and that's one that's actually very interesting to me. I'm a I'm a huge fan of Bitcoin. I think it's very important, but Ethereum is interesting because it adds this idea of smart contracts, which I'm sure we'll we'll get into and want to talk about at some point as a developer those are very uh very interesting so is is the value based on the combination
1: of technologies or is the value based on the the faith in the technology i mean i mean you've said that ethereum is uh popular because uh, of the contracts yeah maybe maybe now would be a good time to just
2: stop and explain that Well, uh, this is a great question, Drew. And this is one of these things that like uh, falling down the rabbit hole on on Bitcoin and crypto more generally actually kind of expands your mind and makes you think about a bunch of stuff that you haven't thought about before. So actually, why does anything have value? Uh, Well, (laughs) things have value because someone is willing to exchange something else of value for it. Right. So value comes from is is really a subjective concept that comes uh, from people's willingness to to pay for things. Right. So some things have an obvious reason why they have value. So food has an obvious reason that it has value. We have a a physiological, biological need for for food. Right. Um, But other things, it's less clear why they have the value that they do. Um, and so really the, the answer that I can give you, which is somewhat unsatisfying, but seems to be uh, the truth, is that the reason Bitcoin and if Ether on the Ethereum network and other assets, uh, crypto assets have value is because people are willing to pay for them. Um, Now if you wanted to actually dive into that a little bit deeper or or try to unpack that a bit, I think, um, like you said, I think part of the reason these assets have value is because people see uh, promise in the technology. Uh, They think that this technology could, um, you know, be adopted in a large way, uh, you know, change the world in certain ways, et cetera, et cetera. And if it does, then there would be greater, even greater demand for these assets. And so they expect them to appreciate, right? So a lot of, um, if we're being honest, a lot of the kind of uh, interest in crypto comes from just speculative investment um, in something that that might appreciate in value. In a way, it's, it's not unlike, you know, investing in an early stage technology company, right? That's one analogy that you could draw. Um, it's these crypto networks just happen to have this native asset that in theory, may appreciate if they uh, if they are adopted, um, and so it's kind of like you know buying into um, the vision that these that these networks might uh, might become more mainstream and global in their usage at some point in the future.
0: I would love to hear a little bit more about those smart contracts that you mentioned as part of Ethereum. What is, what
2: does that mean? Cool. Yeah. So um, that's great. I think this is a good uh, transition into kind of what attracts me. Um, about all this as a developer um, and why I kind of fell down the rabbit hole um, way back in the day when I did. And uh, we were talking about this before the show. Unfortunately, so I I first got into Bitcoin really late 2012, early 2013. At the time, it was like uh, between like one and $3 was the price for Bitcoin. (laughs) Now, of course, they're worth like almost 10,000. around there. And unfortunately, like I didn't buy a bunch of them because <laughs> that would have obviously in hindsight been the smart thing to do. Um, but the reason that I got into it is because I was drawn to the te- technology, like as an engineer, as a software developer, um, I was drawn to specifically this idea uh, of digital scarcity, that someone had figured out a way to create something that was digital, a digital only good, and yet was scarce in some way. Um, so. Uh, really what makes me interested in crypto networks is the fact that they give us, and when I say us, I specifically mean software engineers, developers, they give us new capabilities that we didn't have previously. So they give us new primitives um, is a word that I would use. And the three primitives that I uh, would particularly like to to talk about um, are one that I already mentioned, and it was kind of the original, which is digital scarcity. Uh, The second is what I would call unstoppable code, and that's what uh, smart contracts are. And I want to unpack that a little bit in a minute. I just want to mention the third one real fast is immutable data, Um, data that like it's widely shared, available data that can't be uh, changed. So I think maybe we can go through all of those real quickly and uh, unpack them and we can cover smart contracts in that if that works for you. Mm -hmm. That sounds great. Cool. So digital scarcity is kind of the it's the easiest one to wrap your head around, you know, Bitcoin as the first uh, decentralized crypto network was this was primarily what Bitcoin is about. It's about creating a digitally scarce good. Um, and it kind of is what it sounds like, right? Like as opposed to most things digital where you can just make infinite copies of them. In fact, that's one of the advantages that makes digital things interesting. Uh, Bitcoin Uh, A bitcoin is controlled by uh, an address. An address is a private, you know, backed by a private uh, key, a uh, private cryptographic key, and only the person with that key uh, has the right to move that amount of bitcoin that it that it controls. And they can be fractionalized, by the way. It's not like you can only own one or whatever. You can own down to uh, one times ten to the eighth bitcoin or whatever. So they they can break apart into pieces. It's not about a specific thing, but it's just the fact that we have this um, this good that is is digital and yet is scarce in some sense and so bitcoin is the granddaddy of those but now there are many of them so usually each network has its own um, uh, native asset but in addition to that many networks like ethereum that have smart contracts enable you to very easily create uh, additionally additional digitally scarce goods. So they're generally referred to as tokens. And it's very easy now to go out and launch a token, right? So you can, um, there's, you know, with a with a very minimal coding, even these days, the, the frameworks are so, are, have gotten so much better, you can really just go and you can say like, I want, here are the rules around my token. I want it to have this many to ever exist. And, uh, you know, and here's who owns them to start. And here's the rules around who can send them or whatever. You know, it's, it's just code. So you can really encode them to do anything. And then you can deploy that onto the network and create a new digitally scarce good. So as a result, you wind up with such bizarre tokens as the Doge coin Dogecoin. yes, one of my favorites, honestly it's it's so great. <laughs> um, and
1: yes, it is
2: modeled after the Doge the Doge. Uh, yeah, actually it was it was literally started as a joke by its creator and then it kind of just took on and it exists. And I honestly think it's going to be around forever. It's like it, <laughs> it, it's, you just don't it, you just don't let something like the Nyan cat die it's yeah it's like a meme it's like meme money and people just like find it hilarious and so (laughs) meme uh, money they're just gonna keep keep it alive forever i think uh and i'm totally fine with that um Yeah, but so there's a bunch of other ones. And, you know, there's also this, uh, I'll just mention really briefly, there's an idea of non fungible tokens. So a non fungible token means like, each one is unique. Uh, So as opposed to Bitcoin, which you can subdivide, as I mentioned before, these are tokens that you can't subdivide, and each one is unique. These are often used for things like in game assets, for example, um, playing cards, things like that. Um, So yeah, but the big Takeaway here is digital scarcity is something that's new. It, it didn't exist in the world until Bitcoin was created, and now we have the ability as developers to create digitally scarce goods. So that's the first thing. The second primitive is uh, unstoppable code, as I call it, and this is um, this is where uh, smart contracts come into play. So. Um, essentially, a, a smart contract is uh, is code that you can write, and but it runs on the blockchain. And what that means is that your code gets executed across this peer-to-peer network. Um, anyone can people can interact with your code. Um, your code can do things on the blockchain, like move assets and tokens around, like we were discussing. Um, it can also just update and store data on the blockchain. Um, and what uh, what's unique about smart contracts is that once they're deployed, they can't be changed by anyone, including the person who deployed them or created them. Right, so it's this fundamentally new thing in that we can create systems. Where once the rules are encoded and everybody can see the rules, they're public, they're transparent. Once the rules are encoded, no one can change the rules of that system, right? And so again, that's a fundamentally new thing, and we're just starting to kind of scratch the surface of what that means and what are the kind of systems that you can what, that you can build with it. Um, but I think just that that one little insight is really profound. That we now have a way to create a system where the rules are immutable, even for the people that are behind them. And again, contrasting. The this to kind of the current way that the internet works, this is really fundamentally different, right? Like Google can change its search algorithm uh, on the dime. They don't have to give you a reason why you can, your page rank can change overnight because they've decided to to change the way that they rank something. Um, This is different than um, the way systems work in uh, smart contracts where the uh, the code is immutable. Can you give a, a little bit more of a concrete example? Uh, sure. So, um, well, like, so previously, like we were talking about uh, tokens, right? Uh, just as a very simple, simple idea. So the idea of a, uh, of a token where you could deploy, and this is something that is happening, by the way, so you could deploy tokens that represent assets in games, right? So in game assets. So for example, like a trading card or a competitive card game, like, um, like Magic the Gathering. So a, a game built like that, but the cards are tokens on the blockchain and uh, some or all of the rules or logic around the game can be encoded into the smart contracts, right? Um, if you now that you've you've deployed that to the, the blockchain, it's kind of becomes like this uh, autonomous uh, system. And um, you know, there have been examples, for example, of 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 games where the. The servers that are run by the companies that created the game—they change the rules, they modify this, and it kind of really messes up the economics of the game. You know, people spend a lot of money on in-game assets and power-ups and all the different things that you have in the games, right? And uh, but the company that's controlling that can change that overnight, right? So this is sort of a trivial example, but in a way, it's also not um, that you can encode these rules around how the game works or who owns what assets, um, and those can't be uh, modified once they're deployed. Hmm, so here's a follow-up question. Uh-huh. And maybe the answer is, that's, it just doesn't work this way. What if you need to modify them? <laughs> what, if, yeah. what if the rules of the game need to be updated? And so, so on and so No, forth. that's actually a really good question. Um, and uh, the answer is, it depends. But the short answer <laughs> is you're, you're kind of up up the creek without a paddle. So it is code, right? And you can make code flexible, right? So if you encode in the rules, of the game or whatever, a way to upgrade the game or a way to upgrade a portion of the game or something at some point, then you can do that. But if you don't, then you can't. And this has actually led to like really, um, you know, really uh, interesting consequences in a couple of instances. So in particular, like security around smart contracts is really sensitive because of this fact that you can't change it. And if there is a bug now, we were talking about games. Games are relatively trivial um, in the grand scheme of things, but a lot of smart contracts actually have to do with financial products in one way or another. So things that deal with real money, people's money. Um, And if you write something that deals with real people's money, you deploy it to a system where you can't change it once it's up there. (laughs) And then there's a bug um, that, for example, allows an attacker to siphon off some of that money there's nothing that you can do about it. Um, again, unless you've encoded some way to, to upgrade it as part of the, the thing that you've deployed. And there have been some- This slowly reminds
1: me of the game Gnomic.
2: I don't know that game. Gnomic is a, a game where you basically have
1: a set of immutable rules and a set of mutable rules. Hmm. Oh. And the rules that you get to start with are how to make and change rules.
2: Interesting. And then that from there, like you can you know, whatever you want with it. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's kind of like that, right? Like you get to make the rules up, uh, and you get to decide what rules you can change and how you can change them. But you once you've made that decision and you've deployed it, you can't, you can't, uh, you can't go back on it. So um, it, it's led to some high-profile incidents, by the way, like really high-profile, where people have, lo- like, you know, people and companies have lost millions of dollars because there were bugs, and it's led to attacks and. Like honestly, you you literally just go well. That's that's it. There's nothing that can be done about that. Um, and uh, and so security is a really big deal. And actually, uh, audits are a huge part of the process uh, when you're thinking about deploying a, a serious smart contract. And it's in a sense, it's a little bit. It's very different from what we're used to as software engineers because we're used to like this idea of, you know. Move fast and break things. You can always ship a fix. Like if there's a bug in production, like whatever, you know, hit your CI, and an hour later, like you have a a fix deployed, and just like iterate, right? Um, With a smart contract, you really can't do that, and and so it actually takes a different kind of mindset um, in terms of how you architect things and how you how you proceed with actually deploying that code um, and going live in production.
1: How do you how do you uh, engineer the changeability of the things you don't want to change? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you definitely would enjoy the game nomic
2: sounds, yeah, sounds like it would be up my alley, so add that to the notes to look into that afterwards. <laughs> so um, that was kind of my thumbnail sketch of, of smart contracts. I could talk about it all day, but just yeah. to give you kind of a, a taste. Um, the third thing that I want to just touch on briefly is this idea of immutable data. I would say that this is, so far, it's the thing that we've explored the least in the blockchain world. Um, There's a reason for that, like storing things on a blockchain is is very expensive. And I should mention, by the way, with smart contracts, doing computation on the blockchain is very expensive as well. Right. Like you you literally pay a fee to execute the code in the smart contract on the blockchain. Um, And those fees can be non-trivial. And if you're doing any like so you don't you don't like render things on the blockchain. Right. Like you don't even you don't even do like. Particularly computationally intensive things at all on the blockchain because it's really expensive. Um, but it, it's expensive because it has these unique properties that we were talking about before, right? So, uh, an immutable data is one of those. And when you think about it, it makes sense why it's expensive and why you can't just willy nilly like upload gigabytes of data to the blockchain because that data that you put there, that immutable data has to be replicated across every single uh, peer, every single peer in the network, and it has to be maintained for the rest of time, for all of history. That data is now part of this immutable ledger, right? So if you if it wasn't expensive, then we would uh, pretty quickly balloon into huge um, amounts that would be unsustainable. But for specific things, for specific, uh, you know, cases where uh, having data that's immutable is worth the cost that it, you know, would cost you to Place it there. Um, there are a whole bunch of kind of I feel underexplored, uh, you know, potential uses for that as well.
1: It's almost like a safety deposit box.
2: Yeah, it, it is in a sense. Um, yeah, it it is very interesting. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of things that can be conceived of that you could could do with that. And and really, I would say that's kind of one of my my themes overall, and why I find this stuff so fascinating is because, because this gave us a whole bunch of new primitives. It's like we didn't really even know what to build with it, right? Like we're 10 years into this thing and we're like still kind of just figuring out some like some of the most interesting new use cases for some of this stuff. So I have no doubt that it's going to be important and that we are going to build really interesting systems. But just because of how new it is, um, it uh, it is taking some time. And I kind of actually go back to having that background in native mobile development. It reminds me in a lot of ways of the early days of smartphone computing and the iphone and then android after that you know being adopted where as developers as engineers we suddenly got a whole bunch of new capabilities like all of a sudden everybody had a a supercomputer in their pocket that, by the way, also had a camera and also had a GPS sensor, and then eventually also had a gyroscope and a whole bunch of other sensors attached to it. And so it kind of took us a while to figure out what to do with all these new uh, abilities that we had just gotten, and explore and invent the kind of new uh, apps and and things that were um, interesting to do with these new powers. And I would say crypto is like that, maybe even to a more extent, because the things that we're dealing with are so low level that it, like, it's taking time to sort of put the building blocks together and explore what these things are valuable for. But I think we're starting to see that in, that emerge in this kind of embryonic nation state. Yeah. And it's it's really exciting to get to, to play with it. So what have you
1: come across recently that's really just grabbed your attention and you're like, I want to dive more into this specific thing?
2: yeah um so i was <laughs> like give a kid you... in the candy store he's like yeah <laughs> there's so many that i could go into so i'll give you i'll start i'll start with one that's really weird okay and then i'll backtrack mm. and, and go to some that are a little bit more um that are a little bit more like you know probably mainstream ideas right um so this one that's really weird is this game called crypto voxels okay crypto voxels and um If you're familiar with Minecraft, uh, you know, Minecraft, I think everybody knows what it is now if you have kids. Like my age, you definitely know what it is. So like the idea where, you know, the, these these games where you have these chunky blocks, they're like 3D pixels. Those are called voxels, right? And these Minecraft and these other games that have kind of adopted this style are these expansive world building games where there's not really a particular direction or goal in the game. It's just that you exist in this world and you can kind of explore it and collect resources and build things and create in this game. And people kind of call it, um, you know, like like digital Legos or whatever, right? Um, And kids really like these kinds of games. Um, And and I think they're, you know, I think they're good for kids compared to some of the other things that that a kid could be doing. Um, So there's a game called Cryptovoxels, which is kind of basically like this. It's an expansive kind of world with these chunky blocks and you can build things, but you can only build on a parcel, a piece of land in the game that you own. And that ownership of each parcel of land is maintained and tracked by uh by non-fungible tokens on the ethereum blockchain right and so you literally have a real estate market uh, which has developed in this virtual world um, and when you own this like you actually own it right like so you you own this token and no one can take that token away from you right so it's uh it's um it's a little bit different than the typical game um, and uh, it's it's weird like this this really vibrant little world now it's still extremely niche right there's probably like a few hundred people um, in the world who play the game regularly or something along that order maybe maybe it's thousands i don't even know but you know it's it's still small compared to something like Minecraft, which is ubiquitous. But um, if you walk around this, this digital world, what you see are these immensely creative structures where people have spent Hours of their time building fascinating things, and not only have they spent their time in the game, they've also spent real money to own the lands on top of which they've built it. So there's there's kind of something going on here, and it's sort of interesting, um, and and it's something that just wasn't really possible to do um, before these things existed. And there's a vibrant, you know, small but vibrant market for uh, the real estate in this in this digital uh, voxel game. So that's that's my kind of weird example of something that's exciting right now.
1: There was a, a similar. similar Similar game a bunch of years ago called Second Life. Yeah, where there was a lot of that purchasing of of real estate and purchasing of yeah in-game credit. But I don't believe in any way that was attached to any form of uh, blockchain technology. I think it was just an economy managed by
2: the uh, the game itself. Right, so I never played that game, but I definitely remember hearing people talk about it. Um, and yeah, to my understanding, it was all just based on the you know the, your ownership was tracked in the servers of of this company. And and this is a way that this is kind of different and sort of makes things uh, you can invest in it a little bit more securely, knowing that there's this decentralized system where you actually control the ownership. It the company can't just decide to turn their their servers off someday and and shut the universe down. Now the game itself is not running on the blockchain. Um, and so in that sense, the, the creators of the game could turn that off. But because all the game state, so to speak, is stored um, on the blockchain, the community could always just reboot it or even fork it if the creators of the game decided to go in a direction that they didn't like. So this is one of the ways that it's that it's interesting and, and different than sort of the traditional that's, um, setup.
1: That's really impressive. The concept of the game will follow you. Yeah. Why do I sense that's one step closer to, uh, to Ready Player One? Yeah, right. (laughs) There are so many things we can do with this. And yeah, I think we definitely can talk more in the after show about this. Um, There's just unbelievable amount of technologies. And I do agree that we have barely scratched the surface, much like being dropped the iPhone in our hands and just saying, "Okay, go run and see what you can do with this thing. And I do look forward to what else we'll talk about in the after show. In the meantime, Alex has been looking into flutter's game engine which is flame is that correct alex
0: yeah that's correct it's a it's a game engine um in flutter so it's a library that somebody built in the flutter ecosystem to allow people to make really simplistic sort of 2d games so flutter Um, Flutter
1: itself is supposed to be the multi-platform system so does that mean that build it in flame and it'll run on multiple platforms
0: yeah, yeah. So it'll run anywhere where Flutter runs, which means on Android, iOS, desktop, web. You know, choose your front end environment, and and it'll work with some amount of performance in that in that environment. Um, yeah, and it's it's a much, 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 much simpler sort of game engine than something like Unity, something along those lines. Yeah. It's really if you're if you're into Flutter and you want to build something with Flutter, it gives a bunch of really sort of low-key game primitives. Um, things like an event loop, things like a sort of component system where you can plug in, you know, different sprites into components and have them automatically update and it gives you a little render callbacks and so on. And it's been it's been a really fun time. Yeah. Is it optimized? Into different platforms, like does it take no. advantage? No. Yeah, no. It's it's definitely at a um, a much higher level than that. It's really it just like sits on top of normal Flutter and uh, provides honestly a, a very key few set of primitives and i I think ultimately the the main focus of this um game engine and honestly even engine is is kind of in quotation marks is to give you a event loop so that you don't have to write your little while loop and figure out how long a tick is it will give you that information and like time between ticks and to give you a little component system where you can say create a, a uh, sprite component and it'll update every tick, and you'll know how long that tick is. And then a little render method for each component where you get a canvas and you can draw some stuff onto it. And ultimately, that's really the entirety of the <laughs> game engine. It's kind of, it's designed, yeah, it's designed to be um, very, very minimalistic. It's not trying to do a whole bunch. So there's no extra, as far as I know, no extra sort of. Um, you know, uh, environment-specific optimizations or anything along those lines. It really just builds off of Flutter, fundamentally.
2: I was just gonna say, how does it compare to something like uh, Kit on iOS? It sounds like it's simpler uh, and, you know, has less going on. Yeah. I would again say that it's at sort of a higher level. I haven't dove in,
0: Dibbin? Diving. Oh. I haven't gotten that deep into SpriteKit. Dove. There we go. Um, I've dove into SpriteKit, but um, my sense is that that SpriteKit is more like at the sort of operating system level for Apple to give you a, a hook into um, games and whatnot. Correct me if I'm wrong there. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas uh, Flame is definitely an abstraction on top of that. It'll and and since it's in Flutterland, it kind of throws all of that away, anyways. Um, but it it gives you yeah like little primitives where you can pass through images and call that a sprite and draw it on screen. But it's really designed to be um, minimal and easy to pick up. Yeah, you could do blockchain visualizations with it.
2: <laughs>
0: I could. I don't know if you would, but you could. And I've been using it to make a little, a little tower defense game. Um, so obviously those are those are ubiquitous across mobile. But I've I've been trying to to make a game where you can kind of draw a maze and have your enemies go through the maze, very Warcraft three style. So that's been my impetus to try out Flame and, and get into this world. My son keeps telling me yeah. he wants to build a tower defense game. So maybe I'll throw him,
1: oh. maybe I'll throw him at you and say, here, try try Flame.
0: Yeah, there you go. You can you can take a look at my god awful code.
1: <laughs> He's thirteen. It's gonna be fantastic impressive code in his mind. <laughs> Love it. Good. Well That's... except for the thirteen year olds who are dropping out of school to start their first multimillion dollar company now.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it's no longer a given that uh uh my code will be impressive to thirteen-year-olds. It gets less and less true with each passing year. I begin.
1: I begin to wonder if I were to go through some of the uh, the, the the crypto network and then the blockchain uh, open source repositories, how many thirteen-year-olds are in there going? You know, that's just not right.
2: <laughs> well, I yeah, I'll I'll make you feel bad by letting you know that Ethereum was created by a guy who was so at the time. I don't know. I think. Maybe nineteen, maybe seventeen. He was very photolytic <laughs> Peter, and it's his name. But uh, uh, so there you go. Yeah, yeah at least we know who
1: created Ethereum. Unlike exactly, unlike Satoshi Nakamura, <laughs> who we we don't even know if is that's a person, a group of people.
2: Nope, no clue.
1: <laughs> Someday, Ben, I really want to thank you for your time for coming on the show. It is always a pleasure to have you with us.
2: It was great to join you again. Hope we can do it again sometime, and. uh, Thanks for having me. And we will, of course, have more of Ben
1: in the after show coming up. Um, To give you a little bit of the schedule coming up, our next RW talk, uh, Peter Fries will be talking about building Swift UI apps with Firebase. And I'm sort of looking forward to that one because I'm finally honing my Swift UI skills. For those of you who are catching this episode as it drops on the 29th, Peter's talk will be this afternoon, this evening at about 6 o'clock Eastern time. So we definitely think you should tune in for that for those of you of course listening on the podcast we do invite you to look for this episode in a few weeks on youtube the video episode will contain some of the information we had to leave on the cutting room floor for time and the more casual after show with our guests that will start up real soon we hope that you'll check it out but in the meantime we head back to the emerald castle ray back to you
2: and that's a wrap
0: thanks again everybody for listening to the raywinner.com podcast We hope you enjoyed it, and don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.